we're only going to read one verse today. I'm not sure if that uh, planned it out that way the week that I was preaching. I'm not sure if that says something about uh, how long I preach. So it limited me just to, just to one verse this week or, or what, but uh, that's how it worked out. So, um, you know, the, the older I get, the, the more nostalgic I get. And, and maybe part of that's because uh, I, I live away from family and, uh, and, and that kind of thing. But, it, but I, I, I find myself remembering a lot and thinking a lot about, uh, about growing up. And I had such a, such a good childhood looking back on it. Um, and, and one of the fa- favorite things for, for me to do, uh, I was kind of a weird kid, you may find that surprising, but uh, I loved to spend time with my grandparents, with both sets of my grandparents. I loved to, to stay at their house. In the summertime, a lot of times we'd stay at my, my grandparents' house for a week or, or longer at a time and, and several times during the, during the summer. Uh, they didn't live that far away from us. We would spend weekends with, with both sets of my grandparents a lot, um, and, and I loved that. But I never wanted to do that by myself. I guess I got homesick or something. I always wanted my brother or sister to to be with me. Um, And so uh, whatever that means, I don't know. But one of the things that that my brother and I loved doing, uh, I think he did, I I know I did, is when we went to visit and stay with my mom's mom and dad, my my maternal grandparents, uh, we called them Grandmama and Granddaddy Henson. Henson was our last name. Um, my granddad was a farmer, and we loved to spend time with him, and we would, we would go work with him uh, during, the, during the week uh, that, that we were there, the weekend we were there. He would always make time for us to, to usually go fishing sometime during the week or the weekend, uh, but we would go to, go to work with him. And he worked with, uh, with my uncles and some other guys that, that worked for him. And so we would, we would ride the cotton pickers, we would ride the tractors, we would we would ride in the ton truck, do, do whatever uh, with, with whoever. Um, but, but I loved riding the tractor with him when he was driving. And he had his, his favorite tractor, the main tractor he drove was a John Deere 4020 with no cab on it, just open, open seat. And so he would obviously sit in the seat driving and my brother and I would sit on each fender and try to hold on and not fall off and, and, and ride that way with him. And we would do all kinds of things and uh, but I remember, especially in the early part of the year, in the, in, in the springtime, uh, when he would be disking the, the fields, getting ready to, to plant, right? So think, if you don't know what that is, think of like a, like a big rototiller that's pulled behind a, behind a tractor. And it just disks all the, all the ground up, tears all the ground up, and, and gets it ready to, to plant. And they don't do this as much anymore. They used to plow back then, too. They don't do that as much anymore now that they do no-till farming. But, um, but they did then. And, and we would be riding the tractor with him and he would be disking and, and, and what would happen is, you know, you would, you would do paths around the field back and forth. You'd go to the end of the field, turn around and come back and then turn around and go back. And, uh, and, and inevitably, as, as he was doing this, he was tearing all the ground up and behind the tractor would be, uh, would be all these birds. And you'd see them, they'd fly down and they'd be looking for, for worms or something as the ground's being torn up, uh, looking for something to eat. And my granddad would, would oftentimes point them out to us and, and tell us what kind of birds they were and, 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 and that kind of thing. Sometimes you'd see a rabbit hop away or, or a field mouse or something like that. But sometimes we would look up in the, in the sky, my, he would point it out to us usually, uh, and there would be a big hawk flying around. And if y'all seen a hawk, you know how big they are and how, how, how beautiful even they are. They don't really flap their wings that much. They kind of glide with their, with their wings stretched out. 
and, and they would be soaring through the sky around the field, kind of making paths around, and they'd be looking for a, a, a rabbit or a mouse or something, uh, even get something uh, to eat. Uh, another area where I, where I grew up in northwest Tennessee, there's a, there's a big lake there called Real Foot Lake. And it's kind of in northwest Tennessee, not too far from, from Fulton, Kentucky. Uh, and it was, it was formed in the 1800s when there was a big earthquake and the Mississippi River ran backwards for a few days and filled this area of land in and, and became this huge lake. And one thing they're known for is, is eagles. And so certain times during the year you would go there and, and people would go there and, and, and do eagle watches. Y'all remember Mr. Bob and Ms. Ramey, they used to, every year, they would, they would travel for a couple of weeks and go out to western Kentucky around, uh, around Kentucky Lake, around Lake Barkley. Uh, sometimes they would go down to Tennessee to Real Foot Lake and, and do these big eagle watching tours. And people love to watch the, the eagles as they come in to nest and watch them soar, fly through the sky, um, things like that. In our passage this morning in, in Revelation 8.13, uh, we see, see a very similar theme. All week, uh, I've been thinking about my, my granddad and those, those uh, tractor rides and those hawks sweeping down. Listen to what Re- uh, Revelation 8.13 says. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. In this passage, we see two things, I think. We're going to have two points today. Uh, The first point, point number one, is God is just. God is just. And the second point, point number two, God is merciful. Okay, God is just and God is merciful. But before we do that, I want to, I want to take a, a few minutes here at the beginning before we get into those two points to, to, to look at this scene and, and, and look at especially a couple of the, of the elements of this scene. Okay, so John turned and looked and he saw this eagle flying. Okay, and then he heard this eagle say, say something. And we're going to talk about what he said in a minute, but I want to think about this, this scene that he sees, this eagle flying in, in mid-heaven, it says, or in the midst of heaven in the midst of the air, flying like eagles do. He turned and saw this. And as you know, the book of Revelation is a highly symbolic book, right? And so I want, to, I want us to think for a few minutes about how birds and eagles are used in the Bible. Okay, because there's a few different ways. Uh, my count this week, by my count this week, there were, uh, in the ESV, the English Standard Version, there are 124 times that birds are referenced. Okay, and then another 28 times that specifically eagles are referenced. And so I want us to, to, to think through for a few minutes. We're gonna, we're gonna read some passages of scripture. You don't have to turn there. Uh, I've got them printed out here in front of me so that, so that we don't uh, spend all that time flipping back and forth. So, so you can just listen. But the 124 times that, that birds are mentioned, okay? 71 times, so the most times, 71 times, uh, when it talks about birds, the Bible is just talking about creation, right? So think about like Genesis 1, where it says God created the birds. Um, and there's other passages throughout the Bible where it, where it just mentions birds, talks about birds as a part of creation. That's the most times, 71 times. Four times, uh, birds are uh, included in dietary laws. 
So you may remember in the Old Testament, there were certain dietary restrictions or certain passages where you're not supposed to eat this type of, of animal or, or this type of shellfish or whatever it might be. And there's four times where birds are included in that. Okay, so for example, in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 13 to 19, there's this whole list of types of birds that we're not supposed to eat. And included in that list is eagles and vultures and buzzards and ravens and ostriches and owls and seagulls and hawks and, and others. But there's a whole list of, of, of types of birds we're not supposed to eat. Okay, so there's four times where when birds are mentioned, that's what's in view. Fifteen times uh, when birds are mentioned, it's talking about the sacrificial system. So how you offer certain sacrifices for certain things and offer certain sacrifices in certain ways, okay? So in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 14 says, it says, if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, okay? So there's some passages like that that tell us how to specifically to make offerings. This type of bird for this type of offering, and here's how you're supposed to prepare it. Nine times... Birds uh, are used metaphorically to talk about prey, okay, and, and, and to metaphorically talk about people as in dangerous positions like prey would be. So, for example, in Psalm 20, uh, 124, this is a psalm about God delivering his people from, from their enemies, and it says, we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowler. The snare is broken and we have escaped. And so bird is used like metaphorically for, to, to describe the people. Another example is in Proverbs chapter 7, talking about adultery. Uh, the proverb says, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know it will cost him his life. And so there's, there's, there's times where imagery of birds is used in this way, kind of a metaphor for, for danger, metaphor for prey, metaphor for people getting into trouble. Okay? If we think about eagles... Uh, there, there's several times that, that eagles are used in the Bible, mentioned in the Bible, not as many times as just bird in, in, in general, obviously, but there's 28 times. Two of those are, are dietary laws. So we've already looked at that passage in Leviticus that had eagles listed as a type of bird you're not supposed to eat. Three times uh, eagles are mentioned uh, in, in reference to God's care or God's provision. Okay, so in Job chapter 39, Job is, or God is questioning Job here. You may remember at the end of the book, God's questioning Job. And he says, is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? And obviously the answer is no. Job is not the one that does that. But the point is God is the one who does. God is the one who cares for the eagles and, and, and takes care of them. And, and sometimes that same idea is used, but it's metaphorical for, for people. So in, in Exodus chapter 19, uh, talking about deliverance from Egypt, Moses writes, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And so God didn't literally put them on the backs of eagles and fly them to himself, right? But it's a metaphor for how God swiftly uh, swooped down and, and, and gathered them and, and brought them to himself. Three times where, where the eagles used that way. Four times, eagle is used in an in apocalyptic way. So think about back in Revelation chapter 4 that we read several weeks ago where it talks about the four living creatures, right? And it says, in verse 7, it says, the first living creature was like an ox, and the second living creature like an, uh, the third, the second living creature, oh, sorry, sorry, I'm sorry, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And there's some other places in the Bible where, where eagle imagery is used in this kind of apocalyptic way. There's two more, two more ways, or really three more ways. 
Seven times the imagery of eagles are used to, as a metaphor for human pride. So in Obadiah chapter one, he's talking here about the proud Edomites, the people who live in Edom. It says, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So obviously they're not living in nests, they're people, not, not birds, but, but they're used as a metaphor that you're setting yourself up high like this soaring eagle. And then there's nine times where eagles are used as a, as a metaphor for strength or for, for being swift. And so in Jeremiah chapter 4, 13, it says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, one shall fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Moab. And again, he's not talking literally about eagles here. He's talking about a, an invading army that's going to come and attack the people of Moab. But he's saying they're going to do so. Uh, they're going to come swiftly and, and, and quickly like an, like an eagle. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, he says, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And so again, God's saying if you trust in the Lord, rely on him, then he's going to give you strength and you're going to be like the eagle. And, and, and it's used metaphorically this way. Okay? So these are the way that, that the images of, of birds and eagles are used in the Bible, except for one final way. Oftentimes in the Bible, birds and eagles especially are used in a, in a symbolic way for coming judgment. Okay, and remember, Revelation's a highly symbolic book. So let's think about a few of these places. In Deuteron Deuteronomy chapter 28, God's talking to the people and he's saying, here's how I want you to live. You're my people, I'm your God, I've made you my people, now here's how you're supposed to live. And he lays out, uh, he lays out the, 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 um, uh, the, the elements of, of the covenant. And he says, if you do these things, then you'll be blessed. And you'll be blessed in your houses and in your, your kneading bowl will be blessed. You'll have lots of food in, in this whole list of, of blessings. And then he says, but if you don't do these things, then you'll be cursed. And he lays out this list of, of curses. And he says, one of the uh, curses mentioned is in verse 25 and 26. It says, the Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. This is if you turn away from the Lord and don't trust in him, right? The Lord will cause you to be defeated by, before your enemies. You should go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them. And you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And then he says, your carcasses will be food to all birds of the sky and to the beasts of the earth. And, they will, uh, and to them will be no one to frighten them away. So he's saying, I'm going to send judgment. If you turn away from me, there'll be judgment. There'll be consequences. And your bodies will be carcasses, food for the birds. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, this is the story of David and Goliath. And remember, the Philistines are there mocking the people of Israel. And this little kid, David, comes. They have this giant Goliath that's part of the Philistines. And this little kid, David, comes up. And he's going he's to stand up for, for Israel and rely, trust in God, rely on the Lord. And this is what Samuel said, or this is what David says to Goliath. He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philippines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in heaven. Again, part of this imagery, sim sim symbols of, of judgment is that the birds are gonna be there to eat the dead bodies. 
In Job chapter nine, verse 26, he says, they go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. Again, this idea of how birds swoop down on, on their prey, this is how people are gonna come against the people of, of God if they turn away from him. And then finally, Habakkuk chapter one says, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. And so again, this imagery of an attacking army that's coming against the people that have turned away from the Lord, and one of the ways that he describes this attacking army is coming swiftly like an eagle, swift to devour. This is the imagery, this is the symbol, this is the message that's being presented to John in this vision. When John turns and looks and he sees this eagle in flight, flying in the midst of, of the sky, flying in... Uh, above the, the people, above the world, above what's about to happen. This is the idea. This is the, the message that John's supposed to receive. The appearance of the eagle symbolizes coming judgment and utter and complete destruction. Later in Revelation, it becomes even more clear. In Revelation chapter 19, you may be familiar with this passage. This is after Jesus comes to make war against his enemies. It says this, starting in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Some translations say all the birds were gorged on their flesh. Which I don't really know what the word gorge means exactly, but I think of it as they've eaten so much they, they're, they're too heavy even to fly now. And this is a, a, a picture of what's gonna happen when God comes to judge his people, that there's gonna be utter and complete destruction. Nothing's gonna be left. The meaning of this symbol of the eagle becomes even, even more clear, more uh, explicit, more unmistakable when, when John hears his message, when John hears him speak. He turns and sees the eagle flying, and then he hears what the eagle says. He cries aloud with a loud voice and says, woe, woe, woe. Now, woe doesn't really mean anything. We can't really translate woe into English and, and translate what's going on there. It doesn't really have a definition. It's like, a, uh, like an ex exclamation, like, like we use in English. We might cry, if something happens, we're surprised or, or hurt or something, we might just yell, oh, or we might say, oh, snap, right? Some of y'all may say that. I don't say that, but some of y'all might. Uh, we might say, oh, man, or, or something like that, right? That, that's, that's how woe is. That's what, that's, that's what woe is. And, and woe is used two different ways in the Bible. 
okay? So, so bear with me as we, as we think about this. It's not gonna be as long as the birds and the eagles, but there, there are two different ways that, that woe is used in the Bible, okay? And so the, the first way uh, makes me think of, I don't know if you all, maybe some of y'all of a certain age might remember the old TV show, Hee Haw. Do I remember that show? Uh, there was a skit on that show that was a recurring skit that would come up a lot, and it was the four guys, I don't remember who they were, Archie Campbell and uh, Roy Clark, and I'm not sure who the other ones were, um, maybe uh, uh, whatever his name is, Gomer Pilot, can't, can't think of his real name. But anyway, this, these four guys were there, right, and they would, they would sing this song, and the song always started with gloom, despair, agony on me, right? That's one of the ways that woe is used. That's one of the things that, that woe means. Someone who, who realizes something bad's about to happen, who realizes kind of the hopelessness of their situation, of their position, and, and they cry out, woe is me. Okay, we just read this this, this morning, Matt read it uh, from Isaiah chapter six. Whenever God came to him and he was in the presence of God and realized his own situation in comparison to God's holiness, he cried out, woe is me for I'm ruined. There's some other places where this is used. We're not gonna read a lot of them. There's 14 different times this is used in the Bible this way. One of them's in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter nine, where Paul is talking about how God has called him to preach the gospel. And he says, this is not something I should be proud of, not something that you should admire me for. This is something that I have to do, something I've been called to do. And he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Sometimes when people find themselves in a situation where they, they come face to face with the true situation before a holy God, they cry out, woe is me. That's one way that, that, that woe is used in the Bible, 14 times. 69 times, way more commonly, 69 times woe is used as an announcement or a warning of judgment. It's not someone crying out themselves that they, they, they realize they're in this situation, they cry out on their, on their own behalf, woe is me, but someone else cries out to them, warning them, uh, and oftentimes it's someone who doesn't realize the situation that they're in. So in Isaiah chapter three, God's warning Israel and Judah for their unrighteousness and how they've not been following him. And, and through Isaiah, he says, the expression of their faces bears witness against them. And they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. But woe to the wicked. It will go badly with them, for they for what he deserves will be done to him. In Nahum chapter three, Nahum is a prophet who's prophesied to the city of Nineveh. You may remember that, uh, that earlier in Nineveh's history, God had, had spared them and had mercy on them. Later in their history, Nahum the prophet comes and he says, woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. This is a warning, an announcement to them that judgment's coming. In Jude chapter one in the New Testament, Jude talks about false teachers who've crept into the church unnoticed and he says, woe to them for they have gone the way of Cain and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished like in the rebellion of Korah. Woe to them. These false teachers are in this situation where they don't even realize how bad it is, but Jude is announcing to them how bad it is. 
We see another good example of this. This will be the last, uh, the last example we look at. But in, in Luke chapter 11, we see Jesus talking this way. Jesus declares woes against the, uh, the hypocritical religious leaders of his day and other people in his day. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 42. Jesus says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you pay a tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet you disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. In verse 43, it says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. One of the loggers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. And Jesus said, Woe to you too, loggers, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. This list of woes that Jesus hands out to to these religious leaders who think they're in a good position. They think they're the ones that are pleasing to God. They think they're the ones that are acceptable to God, and yet Jesus is confronting them with their true situation. Woe to you, because you require this of other people, but you don't do it yourself. Woe to you, hypocrites. In Revelation 18, 13, our passage this morning, this is how woe is used. He's, John turns and looks and sees the eagle, the symbol of, of coming judgment and utter destruction, and then he hears the eagle's message, woe, woe, woe. It's an announcement of coming judgment. We've already seen the, the, the first four trumpets. Last week we looked at those. The first trumpet brought hail and fire and blood that burned a third of the earth and the trees and all the grass. The second trumpet, a great fiery mountain that was thrown into the sea, turning a third of the sea to blood and killing a third of the sea life and destroying a third of the ships. The third trumpet, a great star named Wormwood that fell into a third of the rivers and springs and turned the water bitter and killed many people. And then the fourth trumpet, A third of the sun and the moon and the stars were struck and turned to darkness. And now this eagle announces to John that the next three trumpets, the final three trumpets, will be worse. We'll look at these next three trumpets over the next three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. Several commentators point out that What's so bad about these final three trumpets is that they're going to affect humanity directly, right? These first three affected the rivers and those affect in the, in the fresh water and the, the seas and the grass and all that stuff affect humanity kind of indirectly. But these final three trumpets are going to affect humanity directly. And they're also going to involve Satan and other demonic forces directly. One commentator says this, he says, the calamities unleashed by the blast of the first four trumpets are beyond anything imaginable to the inhabitants of the earth today. But the woes announced by the eagle have to do with the profoundly serious judgments yet to come. John must now brace himself for the sounding of the 
final three angels. As I said before, I think we see at least two things about God from this imagery, from this vision that John sees. First of all, we see that God is just. God is just or holy. As we study through Revelation, especially as we're getting into the, uh, away from the letters to the churches into the more symbolic parts of Revelation, there's some, there's some difficult things that are gonna come up, some hard things that are gonna come up. Some, we might even describe them as bad things that are gonna come up. And, and, and we might be kind of tempted to get the idea, we may, we may have this misunderstanding of Revelation that it's, that it's describing these bad things that are gonna happen in the future that God's working against, trying to prevent, trying to stop those bad things from happening. But that's not at all true. That's not at all true. Don't be, don't be mistaken. These are not events that are outside of God's control. These are events that are well within God's control. In fact, God's the one who sends the angels to blow the trumpets. God's the one who's sending these judgments. They're coming from him. He's the one who's doing the judgment. Even me saying that might make you a little bit uncomfortable, right? Today, we kind of get a little bit uncomfortable today thinking about this aspect of God's character about what it means for God to be holy, what it means for God to be just. But if we don't like thinking about God as holy and, 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 and just and righteous and judging, it may be because we don't take sin seriously enough. It may be because we don't understand how bad rebellion and unrighteousness and sin is and how seriously we should take it. I think too often we think of sin too casually in our world today. When I was living in Oklahoma City, working at a church out there several years ago, uh, one Sunday morning we had this guy that showed up at the church. I can't remember his name, but he was this young guy, probably 19 or 20. He showed up at church one Sunday morning and uh, we'd never seen him before, didn't know who he was. Uh, and he asked to talk to somebody and I went back and stood kind of in the back of the church and talked to him for pretty much the whole service. And he was a, uh, uh, a good guy seemed to be. Um, he was a homeless kid. He was from Georgia. He had met some girl at the bus. He was running away from home and ended up, I don't forget where he was, but he met this girl and just followed her onto a bus and ended up in Oklahoma City because that's where she was going. And then when she got to Oklahoma City, she left him and he was just there by himself now. And so we helped him. Uh, he came back to church during the week and we helped him uh, work on a resume. We helped him get a job. Uh, we helped him... Uh, I think he might have even had two jobs, maybe. Uh, we helped him find a place to live. And we spent a lot of time with this guy. He would show up a lot of times during the week and just kind of hang out with us and uh, spend time with us. And, and one day he went to lunch with us. And we were driving back from lunch and, and we were talking to him. He was not a believer. He didn't, he didn't believe in Jesus. Um, didn't, didn't believe in God even. Uh, and we were driving back from lunch one day and we got into this conversation in the, in the truck about how could a loving God, he was asking, how could a loving God send somebody to hell? He said, I just can't understand that. There's, there's no way that a loving God would send someone to hell. And we got into this big conversation with him and, and, and one of the ways that, that, that we ended up talking to him was the reason that, that you think hell is too bad and that God shouldn't send someone to hell is because you don't understand how bad sin is. You don't realize how bad sin is. And, and, and we kind of used this analogy, made this point with them. You know, we said, if you were to kill somebody, that would be bad. 
And he said, yeah, that, that would be bad. And I said, but if you were to kill one of us, there were three of us there with him, if you were to kill one of us, that would be even worse. Because we met you, we've helped you get jobs, we've helped you find a place to live, we've just taken you out to lunch and bought your lunch. Um, we said, you don't even know it yet, but right now we're not taking you back to your car, we're, we're taking you back to your house. He didn't have a car. We're not taking you back to your house, we're actually taking you to Walmart, we're about to buy you a bicycle, you don't even know that, but we're about to do that for you uh, to help you get to and from work. And if, if you killed somebody, that's bad, but if you killed somebody who's done all this good stuff for you, that's even worse. And this is what's true about sin. Sin's bad because of what it is, but sin's worse because of who it's against, God. R.C. Sproul said that all sin, even the smallest act of sin that you can think of, all sin is an act of cosmic treason because it's against the God of the universe. J.C. Ryle says this, he says, nothing I'm convinced will astonish us so much when we awake in the resurrection day as the view we will have of sin and the retrospect we will take of our own countless shortcomings and defects. Never until the hour when Christ comes the second time will we fully realize the sinfulness of sin. I had a professor in college, I found this on my phone just a minute ago, had a professor in college who, uh, who was also a pastor and he, um, I don't remember if I heard this in a sermon he was preaching or somehow, but, but somehow he gave me this. And it was a uh, kind of a note that he had written to himself when he was younger, maybe when he was in college or seminary, I can't remember. But he wrote it on a note card and put it on the mirror in his bathroom. And so he would read this note to himself every, every morning. And here's what it says. It says, do you hate sin already this morning? I mean, do you seize with hatred and disgust against it? loathing it in its every manifestation in your own life and in your own soul and character? If not, you would best pause for a moment to look sin in the face long enough for its mirage of beauty to pass away so that you may be shocked and horrified anew at what you see. Do not flirt with sin today. He says, sin is a whore and she seeks to seduce you and to destroy you. Think for a moment how quickly sin can wreck your life, your family, your ministry, and even the reputation of your Lord. You dare not risk this. Do not walk even close lest you fall in. There's no room for toleration, no place for compromise. Every sin weakens your character and paves the way for larger sin. Sin is not passive. It is an aggressive cancer eating away at your soul. Take up your weapons then and resist today. Do not let up, do not give in, spare not. Though you are weary, do not surrender. You will have rest in the peace of purity and in the calm of a clean conscience. That's the one who takes sin seriously. That's the one who sees sin for what it really is. And when we understand sin for what it really is, we understand God for who he really is. Holy, righteous, just. God is just, and one day the world's going to see his full wrath and anger against sin. But there's a second aspect to God's character that we see, I think, in this verse. When I was with my granddad on the, on the tractor, and we were in the field, and we saw the hawk soaring in the air looking for a rabbit or a field mouse or, or, or something else, those hawks were silent. 
you couldn't hear them, right? Because they were stalking their prey. And they were trying to sneak up on their prey. They were going to swoop down when the prey least expected it. That's not what we see here. In this passage, John hears the eagle crying out with a loud voice. Woe, woe, woe is an announcement that judgment's coming. But even more than that, it's a warning that judgment's coming. God's warning his people, God's warning his creation about what's to come. One commentator writes this. He says, we can discern no reason why heaven should be thus specifically notified that the succeeding trumpets will be woe trumpets. There's no reason for God to tell us this. Nor yet for the introduction of such a special agency to inform John that they were to be woe trumpets. The intent of the proclamation itself is evidently merciful. I take it as a heavenly signal given in the midst of the ongoing scenes of the day of judgment to apprise men of the terrible plagues next to come. And those then living who have not become utterly blind and deaf to sacred things may take warning and seek refuge against the oncoming calamities. It's one of the principles of the divine administration that mercy is remembered in the midst of wrath. God is just and God is holy and God is right and God's going to do what's holy and what's right against sin. But God's also merciful. God's also merciful. We see his mercy just in the fact that he's delaying that judgment against sin. Delaying it, giving time for people to repent and come to see him. This is a warning that these next three trumpets will be more severe. And this warning comes against those that have hardened themselves against the first trumpets and refused to turn to God in repentance. You may remember James chapter 2 where James is talking about judgments that's going to come, but then he says, but mercy triumphs over judgment. God's judgment's real, and God's judgment is just, God's judgment is right, but God's also merciful. In this passage here, you may notice that the, the warning is, is given specifically to those who dwell on the earth. It says, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels that are about to sound. You may remember from, from earlier passages that, that this, this phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is, is a way in Revelation to refer to people who have turned away from the Lord, people who are not trusting in him, people who are not his People. Those who dwell on the earth are those who are against God. These are the ones that have hardened their hearts and refused to respond. Sin's bad and God's just. There's a just and a right consequence that's going to come against sin. Just like a good judge doesn't let a heinous criminal walk free, God is just and he's going to do what's right. Every single sin that's ever been committed will one day be judged. It'll be judged appropriately, and appropriate punishment will be executed for it. But God's mercy will also be appropriately and perfectly executed. God's made a way for him to remain holy, judge sin, and yet also be merciful toward sinners. R.C. Sproul says, 
There are only two ways that God's justice can be satisfied with respect to your sin. Either you satisfy it or Christ satisfies it. You can satisfy it by being banished from God's presence forever in hell. Or you can accept the satisfaction that Jesus has made. Another commentator says, shelter from the storm of calamity is not found in the emperor's promise of peace and prosperity, but in turning to the living God who is the creator of the world and the redeemer of his people and who sits on the throne of heaven. I ask you this morning, will you turn to the living God today? Make no mistake, God's wrath is coming. God's judgment is coming against sin. But until then, the possibility of forgiveness is open. The possibility of forgiveness remains. James 2 says that mercy triumphs over judgments. And mercy is still available. God's going to do what's right. He's going to judge sin. And either he'll judge your sin on you, he'll judge you for your sins, or if you turn to him in humility, turn to him in repentance, he'll let the guilt of your sin fall on his son Jesus. He says this vision was given about the judgment that's coming to those who dwell on the earth. And so it really all comes down to where our allegiance lies. Are we citizens of God's kingdom? Are we his subjects? Have we turned to him and repented of our sins and trust in him to protect us and give us life and save us and forgive us for our sins? Or is our allegiance to ourselves that I'm going to rule my own life? If so, then that weight of sin, that weight of guilt comes on me as well. 